Edmund Nielsen Woodwinds has been serving the Double Reed community for 70 years. Nielsen sells a wide variety of oboe, oboe de mort, English horn, bassoon, and contrabassoon reeds and cane, as well as reed-making accessories, reed cases, and lafrex. And of course, they have the classic Nielsen wedge knife, which features a double hollow ground with a choice of handle size. In addition, they have many other knives available. Nielsen has long been known for their large heckle bassoon vocal inventory. Fill out their online trial form to start a trial and find the perfect heckle vocal for you. For all your double reed accessories, Nielsen is ready to help you. Hey bassoonists, are you looking to ramp up your reed making? Well, Barton Kane has the solution for you. They offer over 60 variations of precision gouged, shaped, and profiled bassoon cane. Use coupon code free shipping for orders over $150. This includes international orders. Go shop now at www.bartoncane.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish. A podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Okay, so what are we talking about today? It's gratitude for our teachers. Like, we've all had that one who just went above and beyond and really stepped up and helped us out in a significant way. Mm-hmm. And we got some really beautiful submissions, and I can't wait to uh, read those. But what what teacher, like, do you have an experience that you would like to share with a teacher who really stepped up to the plate for you? I mean, probably most of us have a million stories like this because that's kind of the nature of the private teacher relationship. Oh yeah. But one thing that really came to mind was during my master's degree, financially, Chris and I, we had just gotten married. It was like the leave and cleave financial part of young adulthood. <laughs> I have never heard that phrase before. (laughs) And we were just really strapped. Boston is an expensive city. And so my vocal situation at that time was not fantastic. And I'm not going to say the the brand or anything, but what I will say is that um, it was clear that my equipment was holding me back from being able to do everything that I wanted to do in terms of nuance. It was time to upgrade Mm -hmm. and I could not afford the upgrade. And so Dr. Matthew Ruggiero, who was my teacher at the time um, and the founder of the Boston Woodwind Society had founded these competitions in the names of his principals during the time that he was in the BSO. So the Gomberg Oboe Competition, the Dwyer flute competition, etc. And so the Sherman Wall bassoon competition was coming up and he was like, you know, you need to enter that. And if you were to win, the prize money could be a way for you to fund this vocal purchase. And I was like, okay. And so practice, 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 went to the competition, fell on my face. <laughs> Last place was like laughing at me eight miles behind last place. So after the competition, like he announced the winners and they got their prize money. And then he was like, he was this old Italian man. He goes, um, Jacqueline, uh, the, the society also decided to award a uh, honorable mention. And uh, so we're giving you this prize money in the exact amount of a new vocal. Oh my God, that is beautiful. It was, it would have been a, I should put it on my CV as dishonorable mention. It was not a good performance. (laughs) It was the, an A for effort. I think what is clear is that he went to the board or the powers that be or some, or his own pocketbook, who knows, but said, this girl needs an upgrade. She cannot provide it for herself. Can we help her out? And helped me fund this upgraded vocal purchase. And uh, I don't know how it happened, but he made it happen. And 
that's one of the memories that came to mind when we thought about teachers going the extra mile and just pulling a rabbit out of the hat. So uh, yes, much love, Matthew Ruggiero. Oh, that is such a beautiful, beautiful gesture. Yeah. And it wasn't even like he just gave it to you. You know, he, he asked you to work for it and you did and you can't control the outcome, but he appreciated your effort and he decided to reward your effort. Oh, I'll, I'll never forget. I walked out. He was waiting outside the competition and I walked out and he goes, how did that go? And I go, not good. <laughs> and he goes, <laughs> I could cry. <laughs> Uh, getting good at an instrument is so humiliating. I just can't. I can't. What about you? Well, mine's not nearly as dramatic as that. But <laughs> when I was in high school, my private teacher's name was Marilyn Krenzman. And she was an extremely hard worker and great teacher. And I frustrated her to no end. I would never come prepared. And she was just like, oh my God, if you would just learn the scale, it would be so much better for you. But when I finally decided to get serious, she was still there for me. Thank God. And I remember like, the week before my heart school of music audition, I got my swab stuck in my oboe and I could not get it out. It was just really stuck. And I called her and I was freaking out. I can't remember if I was crying or not, but if I wasn't full on crying, my voice was wobbling. <laughs> like, this is Christmas. Oh, can you help me? And so she drove, she came and got the oboe. She drove it like 45 minutes away to her trusted repair person and then brought it back unharmed and in working conditions so that I could have a prayer at a decent college audition. And that was such a loving gesture, especially for, you know, a student who had a history of being super annoying. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) She just never gave up. She was like, I'm telling you, if you just do what I say, like, we all know how that is as a teacher. You're like, they're just not doing what I say. And it's so annoying. And I was totally that person for way too long. And then when I finally like had an opportunity, I got my swab stuck in my oboe. <laughs> she was like, God help me. So I still remember that. That was so long ago. She's a generous person and is just like a wonderful, like the exemplary teacher, you know, who just has the patience and the the forethought to be like, okay, all right, give it to me. <laughs> Don't pull it all the way through. How many times do I have to tell you? <laughs> So we open up our social media to this topic and we got some very heartwarming responses. Mm, Crying. Nicole says, in college, our wind ensemble had a weekend of recording. I was about three hours into an eight-hour day playing principal and my oboe cracked. (laughs) I called my teacher to see what I should do and she told me to just come by and I could borrow one of her oboes for the rest of the project. I was in tears, simultaneously devastated and grateful. The same teacher also spent hours helping me record audition tapes at no extra charge. She's amazing. Angel. Absolute angel. Guardian angel. Yes. Um, I have a submission from Tim Gocklin. Uh, My high school band director, he knew the colleges I was looking to apply to and that I was worried about application fees. At the time I was a junior in high school, he told me about the Interlochen Arts Camp. I was feeling apprehensive about that and not confident about applying. He told me that if I applied to IAC and got the Emerson scholarship, he would help pay my application fees. He paid for them all. I will never forget him or what he did for me. One of the best educators I've ever had. Good was never good enough. He pushed us to be our best every day. Amazing. Both Noah and Christy want to shout out teachers who gave them extra long 
lessons, either because of travel or uh, scheduling, just made extra time in their week to give them extra instruction, which as we know, we're all really busy people. And that is definitely going the extra mile, that above and beyond time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, Noah says, in high school, I was in the green room after a youth orchestra dress rehearsal, and we had a concert that evening, and I put my oboe down and walked away, parentheses, mistake. (laughs) And when I came back, it didn't play at all, so I called my teacher at the time, and she met my mom around the halfway point in a mall parking lot with her spare oboe, and then I played that concert on that oboe. I mean, that's so beyond cool. Definitely. Our last submission comes from Tanner. In my undergrad, like many of us probably experienced at the time, I went through a period where I was not the healthiest mentally. The stress of transferring schools, overloaded credit hours to catch up, etc., had put me in a funk that I wasn't willing to accept. In one of my lessons about mid-year, it all caught up with me and I broke down in front of my professor. She canceled the rest of my lesson and not only took the time to walk me down to the counseling center, but also waited with me in the lobby for over a half hour so I could see someone and not be alone. Hands down, the nicest thing a teacher has ever done for me and I'll never forget it. And of course, big reveal, that teacher is none other than me. No, just kidding. It's sleep. <laughs> None of my as students soon- submitted anything. So uh... as, as soon as I read that, I burst into tears. Tanner, you're making me cry. <laughs> yeah, I was in tears too because my students didn't submit anything. But... <laughs> no, I just want to say, I just want to say to everyone listening that that is a very common experience. And if you're feeling like that, go ahead and open up to a trusted person. We're here to help and we want the best for all of you. You know what I mean? Thousand percent. Before we sign off on this episode, I want to give two quick shout outs. One to all of our listeners who sent me double tonguing resources. Oh my God. Yes. I got several amazing resources and I'm so appreciative. And the second shout out is to the University of Nebraska Bassoon Studio and specifically Dr. Nathan Cook, who forces his students (laughs) to listen to us. I didn't know that. Yes. Well, I don't know because one of our SEMO alums who I still keep in touch with wrote me and was like, oh, members of the bassoon studio, we're talking about double read dish. And I was like, I know her. (laughs) 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 Though as a Hawkeye, it hurts me a little bit. I will shout out the Cornhusker bassoon studio. Thank you for listening and uh, keep up the good work. That's so awesome. Hi, guys. Hi. Stay warm. I bet you're freezing. Don't you hate feeling bored with all the music on your stand? Well, luckily, you never have to feel that way again. JDW Sheet Music offers a wide variety of chamber music pieces for wind players of all ages. Their catalog includes duets, trios, quintets, and even double reed choir pieces for beginner, intermediate, and advanced players. Each of the pieces on the site will include sample pages, audio excerpts, and short descriptions. JDW Sheet Music has also made it possible to access the music sooner through the new digital download-only feature. Pieces that are marked digital download only will be made available immediately after purchase. To learn more about JDW Sheet Music, please visit www.jdwsheetmusic.com. So I want to talk to you guys about Singin' Dog Double Reads. Singin' Dog Double Reads is an online double read shop and one of the largest suppliers of high-quality and affordable professional and student reads for oboe and bassoon in the USA. Visit them at www.singindog.com to see all of their products, and you'll be glad you did. That's Singin' Dog Double Reads. We are excited to talk to Felicia Foland, second bassoon of the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra. Welcome, Felicia. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'd love to start by asking you to tell us how you got started playing the bassoon. 
Oh, probably like a lot of other people by playing the oboe. <laughs> uh, you know, I oh, was no. happy. Yeah, I know. I, I know. I'm smart. I bailed out. Wait, wait, wait for the story. Wait for it. <laughs> but no, I mean, in junior high, like a lot of other instrumentalists, I'm sure it was like people were clicking along in their oboes and their flutes and their clarinets, but oh no, bassoon. So you know, desperate junior high band director said, come on, somebody tried the bassoon. I was like, no, I love the oboe. I'm not going to play the bassoon. And and I finally were, and I said, well, you know, maybe I should try it. Just try it. Took it home. Didn't even know anything about bass clef. It's like, what do you, what's this over here? <laughs> oh, no, no, it's okay. First hurdle. Um, but then, you know, put on the commercial read, got out of the fingering chart, looked at the instrument and could play every note right off the bat. And I said, Oh, <laughs> okay. This might, no, be, this, is better. <laughs> this might be good. <laughs> and uh, yeah. And then, um, you know, I just sort of never looked back. I think I was 13, something like that. And so how did you go about getting serious about the bassoon and deciding to choose it as a career path? What was that trajectory like? It happened pretty quickly. I was very interested in music and and the arts. Um, Like a lot of students, I couldn't just, just do arts in my public school. I had to sort of have so many arts and so many academics. And also I had to sort of crowd and choose some things. And I, I definitely had a, a strong passion for um, music and the bassoon um, soon, soon after I tried it. So I, I stayed with, with um, you know, band and orchestra in junior high and high school. And really it didn't, it wasn't really two, two and a half years before I was like taking an audition for St. Louis Symphony Youth Orchestra. Um, I'm actually originally from a suburb of St. Louis. So um, there were a lot of nice musical opportunities in our community, um, as there still are. And, you know, then kind of getting interested in music camps in the summer. So the trajectory was um, sort of um, a la music geek in school, (laughs) you know, seeking private lessons and um, going to summer camps and taking regular uh, lessons and just being involved. Um, It kind of spontaneously grew out of that. I would love to hear more about your experience in the St. Louis Symphony Youth Orchestra because as a young person, you were conducted by Leonard Slatkin. What was that like? Oh, it was wonderful. I'm I'm glad you asked about that because that's one of my big passions is our St. Louis Symphony Youth Orchestra. And it is um, uh, an orchestra of young people um, in the, or I should say under the umbrella of the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra. And um, it's, it's a great gateway to a really professional experience because it is really run like a professional orchestra. They're blind auditions with numbers and you play on the stage of Powell Hall. And when you're thir- it's 13, 14 or 15 or however old you are, it's, it can be a kind of an amazing experience. A lot of young people are just playing in their gymnasiums or their small school theaters. So it is a really professional environment. And Leonard Slatkin at the time was the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra's assistant conductor, and he founded the youth orchestra, which was great. It was really a, a learning tool for him as a young conductor and a wonderful vision really for the whole community to have a, a true destination orchestra for young people. And we're really celebrating it this year because it's the 50th anniversary of the youth orchestra this year. There's some really cool special events that are going to be happening, um, including another great sort of institution for young musicians, which is from the top, the radio program. Mm -hmm. Um, They're going to be hosting, we're going to be hosting them for our May Youth Orchestra concert as the sort of big bash celebration at the end of the season for the Youth Orchestra. And Leonard Slacken is writing a composition for that concert. So it's wow. all kind of coming around here. Yeah, it's a wow. real celebration this year. I'm so glad you asked me about it. So 
After high school, can you talk us through your training and educational journey on your path to professional bassoonery? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I was I was uh, sort of an anxious young person, so I left high school a year early. Um, I did complete all my work. I did graduate, but I was in a rush. So I went to the Eastman School of Music for my undergrad years. Um, kind of on the young side um, and uh, four years there and then a few years off for what I like to call bad behavior. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> after undergrad school, I think, after undergrad school, I think, I think people need to punctuate, you know, <laughs> so that was, that was some school of hard knocks there for a few years. Some good things happened and it was nice, but you know, I had the nose to the grindstone, you know, went through high school really fast, four years at Eastman, all that. And, um, and, uh, you know, did, just did all the standard things you do in, in college, you know, a, um, recital or two a year, um, started taking auditions. I played extra bassoon and contra bassoon in the Rochester Philharmonic during those four years in Rochester. And then um, I just sort of wandered for a while. I ended up um, in Mexico, in Toluca, Mexico, for a year playing in the orchestra there. Uh, the Orchestra of the State of Mexico. And the next year after that, I ended up in Jalapa in the Orchestra of Jalapa and Jalapa Veracruz. And that was a really great two-year journey for a very young person to, especially an American, I think, to live and work outside of the country. And I'm so glad I had that experience. So I played, you know, a variety of positions in both those orchestras, you know, uh, contra and second in Toluca and then assist, I guess, co-principal or whatever they called it back back then in, in Jalapa, Veracruz. And that was great. So I kind of started building my resume a little bit. And then um, I didn't want to stay too long, though. I really wanted to 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 be stateside. So I came back for graduate work at Northwestern University and I was there two years. So that was awesome too. I loved it. I'd love for you to say more about your experience playing in Jalapa. And you said that it was a really excellent experience for a young American. And I'd love to hear more in detail about that. Well, um, I'm a person who has had not traveled out of the country very much um, as a high school or college person. I went to Europe once and I just didn't have a broad worldview experience. I, I think people get around more often and more easily these days, but in other words, I I hadn't seen that much of the world. So so even though Mexico is our neighboring country and it's not in some ways very far away, it is such a different culture. And I think living and working another, in another country is a real different sort of life destination than vacationing in another country mm-hmm. um, or, or even a family visit, if you will, if somebody has sort of international uh, familial situations where family members are in different lands. Um, I, I think it, it puts you in a different relationship with another country. And we are very privileged in this country. And sometimes I think when we're young, we don't quite realize that yet. So it was, it was a really good growing up that I had to do as sort of a young independent person who wasn't all that experienced. So you know, I was having my full tilt independence and the whole world was sort of out there. And it, it, it was a very good learning experience experience all around. And how did you find your way to the St. Louis Symphony? Well, um, when I came back um, uh, from Mexico and continued my education in um, graduate work at Northwestern University, um, that that was the time I set aside for myself to sort of, sort of stop work, assess where I was, <laughs> and then try to decide where to where to go (laughs) you know what I mean like what what was it going to be was it going to be orchestra playing was it going to be more teaching was it I mean how how was I going to 
how was I going to do it? Where was I going to do it? And I really had my heart set on orchestra. So I, I really kept it there. Um, I had started to do um, some teaching when I was in college and I had some offers for university work and I liked some of the work I was doing at Northwestern University as mostly as like a teaching assistant and that, but I had started to teach privately and um, I was very young, but I always very much enjoyed teaching and I always think of like what my wonderful friend and colleague Todd Bauermaster who plays third horn in St. Louis Symphony says, he says, you know, all the things I tell my students, when I do them myself, it works out pretty good. (laughs) 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 So teaching, so teaching is like this really wonderful reminder, you know, and, um, and so uh, while uh, working very hard to, especially in graduate school, to really examine those things that I think you sort of need to look at if you're going to compete in the orchestral world. For me, it was really developing, a, you know, the, the, the best kind of product I could, you know, for, for auditions. Uh, when you're playing with a group of, you know, 80 to 125 people, something has to, to reach out in a very positive way. That, you know, there has to be something that grabs your listeners. And, you know, for me, it was making sure I had, like, the, the most, you know, interesting, complex, beautiful sort of sound you could get, but also a sound that could go places and do many things. And in some way, you have to, to really, to really reach out with excellence. And, and then there are the other things, the things like maybe you're not so, so good at. <laughs> For me, it was double-tonguing. When I was taking a lot of auditions, this would have been like the starting in the mid-80s through like maybe maybe the mid-90s or so, um, people were just starting to double-tongue like kind of regularly. Like, believe it or not, that was not always a thing. <laughs> you know, it was kind of like, oh yeah, okay, somebody's double-tonguing over there. That's that's kind of novel. And well, it just be- has become a total standard to have a a light, beautiful, even, flawless double tongue. I mean, now it's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. But that was not always the case. So, you know, I had to, I had to, you know, really kick it and and try to figure out how to do that. And and actually, um, I had probably the best lesson in double tonguing, the approach to it. Um, after some some failures, and if you have time for sort of a, 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 a kind of a fun, embarrassing story, I can tell you how I figured out how yes, to approach double Okay, good. Well, I was, <laughs> I was, okay. I mean, so get this: you're like, you know, you're like in your mid twenties, and you're, you know, you're subbing with Chicago Symphony, which is, was my, you know, extra job while I was in grad school, and Dale Clevenger legendary horn player sitting behind you and as you're warming up trying that double thing out you hear behind you are you trying to double tongue <laughs> you know, and I felt like like the tiniest piece of you know trash I could you know possibly feel it's like yes I am he said well what, what have you been doing I said I have been you know going slowly for like a year, like doing, you know, scale slows and getting faster and just sort of, you know, graduating my practice from like a slower tempo to a faster. He said, okay. He said what he discovered along the years was that he had two kinds of students who were double-tonguers. One kind could learn the way that I was learning and it was fine. The other kind could not. He suspected I was the other kind. He said, for one year, do nothing in your tonguing exercises in that portion of your um, practice, then just play whatever you want, middle range, not loud, not soft, but don't go fast, just ta-ka-ti-ka, you know, however, whatever syllables you want, but go slow, go for quality, and go for evenness, but not fast, and then after a year, pour it on wherever you want. Well, you know, after years of playing and over, a little over a year of failed double tongue practice, I had nothing to lose. Mm-hmm. In fact, I was losing auditions because of Beethoven 4. So 
I stopped auditioning for a year and I did that for a year. And a year later I poured it on and boom, that was that. That's fascinating. It is fascinating. And I do think we're probably, we're probably now just sort of understanding like the the ways that people conceive of learning music and learning Uh their bodies in terms of the musician. I think we're just kind of starting in a way, you know what I mean? And so listening to teachers, even if they're horn teachers, I mean, no one else got me there. I mean, not that they didn't. And I, but there are a lot of books on double tonguing. I may have stumbled across it somewhere else, but probably without humiliation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you trying to double tongue? would you be willing to say more about your experiences auditioning and how you refined your process to finally win an audition in your home city I think in so many ways um talking about the process um of the audition itself, I've noticed over the years, I personally don't find that it's changed very much. That, that would be what I'm talking about here is the, the, the organization's process. I think it's, it's pretty good and it's probably as, as humane as it can get without getting very Byzantine. Um, my, my own personal, um, process was something that out of necessity um, I think did have to change to to become successful um, of course I spoke about well, I was I was doing pretty well in auditions and sort of oh, okay I'm starting to make a cut and I'm making two cuts and then I'm you know then I'm a finalist but you know my Beethoven four isn't good enough it's just not <laughs> so 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 there was that that's sort of place where you have to be honest with yourself with really what needs to happen. And there are always those little corners in each of us and they're in slightly different places. Um, But for me, it was treating the audition like now, not the music, but the process of the audition as, as kind of a competition because it is, but not treating the music like, a competition piece. I mean, it still has mm. to sound correct. Okay. It still has to sound appropriate and inevitable and sort of conclusive. <laughs> it still has to be itself, you know? Um, but I, I found that what really helped me was re- for, for myself, it was recording myself a lot. I mm. hadn't come from sort of a feedback listening thing. Um, There were sort of not a whole lot of mock auditions yet, although I think playing for a variety of people, that was probably as close as I got to a mock audition was, you know, play for a trombonist, play for a violist, um, uh, play for a clarinetist. There are all kinds of people judging your performance who who really don't understand the, the small things that well, maybe an oval player would, you know, not throw shade over your flat C or <laughs> a bassoon player might have some mercy about a sharp G natural, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so, so we, we, we have to have that, that sort of universal awareness. Um, and, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with a good cry in a practice room. <laughs> only the only the really good students cry. So you know we can't we can't be too proud. We have to sort of you know sometimes get a little messy and dirty in there. So um, so the process is is a, a a really honest one, but I don't think it should be a brutal one. And I'm sort of sad to see you know, really good young people sort of, you know, bailing out or kind of losing the love they have for their instrument, passion for the repertoire. I I mean, that is so important to keep because it is sanity itself. Music is an incredible refuge and we, we mustn't divorce ourselves from that to getting to an orchestra job because an orchestra job is that. And, and in fact, I think 
people come to us to to take refuge in our environment and our orchestra audience members. I mean, I think they seeking something to be around the company of music. So we 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 shouldn't lose that if if we can. You know, it it can it can be hard. I think what has really changed over the, the decades um, for auditions is the level of competition. Not so much the numbers, not the amount of competition. The level is incredibly high. I'm just so impressed with all the strings, winds, brass, percussion people coming to our orchestra to audition. They're just phenomenal. So know that the, the, the level of competition is very high. So that, that I think that is happened because I think teaching is getting better. I think science is accompanying us better in our seeking a very high level of playing, whether it's you know, our tuning, our recording, or the very, the very science with which our instruments are made. So how did you find your way to the St. Louis Symphony? Well, I had been playing in, uh, as I mentioned, um, some extra playing in Chicago Symphony, and I was playing some extra um, down here with, in St. Louis Symphony as well. And in both those positions, I was doing some substituting for second bassinists who were out. So I was starting to get more second bassoon experience, but I was playing in some regional orchestras south in Indiana and Springfield, Illinois. They were there. They were at the time kind of companion orchestras that ran with this, some of the same personnel and the same conductors. So one weekend we'd have one program in South Bend and the very next weekend we'd have the same program in Springfield, Illinois. And oh my gosh, I was on, I was in the car a lot driving, you know, people in Chicago thought I lived in St. Louis, <laughs> which I didn't. And people in St. Louis thought I lived in Chicago, which I did, which was good. Uh, anyway. Um, so like, like a lot of young players today, I mean, just, the combination of sort of having a home base and doing that crazy thing of trying to take the the best work you could. Um, And I had supplemented that with, you know, freelancing out of a major metropolitan area in Chicago. And I added to that, um, making sure I played, um, in my case, it was recitals. Um, I thought recitals kind of shored up your, your playing in a way that made you strong, but really is actually no better preparation for orchestral audition success than I think taking orchestral auditions because for those you don't decide where to play or when to play or what to play. <laughs> Someone else does all the deciding. So even even if I'm playing a recital and it's like there's a piece I want to kind of dig into, I'm still deciding whether I want to do that or not, no matter how challenging it is. I've made myself comfortable in some way. So um, I, I was sort of starting to crowd auditions into my calendar more. And um, I, I was not a quick learner. I, it took me 32 major auditions <laughs> to get to the St. Louis mm. Symphony Orchestra at the age of 32. Um, but one thing I really noticed is that the people who, who, who don't give up and, and have the right motivation succeed. So if you do keep going, you will make it. <laughs> I mean, it's a little hard to think of in here. I'm not trying to judge anything else per se. It's just that I knew that that was true. And it was true uh, for me. And um, I, think, I think the most important feature of those of us in, who play in an orchestra like St. Louis Symphony Orchestra is is just the focus to keep to keep with it because it it just has to be there. And talent is sort of amorphous, and mm-hmm. and all the other parameters are just sort of uh, impermanent. They're sort of happenstance, you know. Um, there's some arbitrary qualities. Everybody tries to crack the code in this age of statistics and algorithms. That doesn't really fit when you're making something real like music or a read. <laughs> no. mm-hmm. I mean, it's like the pedal hits the metal in a place that's much more real than 
uh, generated information. That, that the level of skill is placed in a different space. Mm-hmm. And I think that's another really important thing to remember. Um, a feature not to let go of. I, I think that's just as important as keeping the, the love of your instrument and playing your instrument and the passion for the repertoire alive. Those those very real tender things that we tend to overlook in the field of, you know, competition and all those, <laughs> those other things. What have you learned from listening to auditions and being on the other side of that, um, of that screen in terms yeah. of what makes a fabulous audition? Basically, we're trying to find the magic formula. Yeah, no, it's good. It's for the really listeners, for perfect. the listeners. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, no, it's great. It's the right question because you're you're showing that the answer is in the question. Like it's. It's like once you you are on the other side of the screen, you're no longer the candidate and so busy with what's in front of you, you can start to see it in like a naked fashion, like mm-hmm. like an out of body experience. Yeah. <laughs> of a good kind, right? So so you really you know, that, that that's the right way to, to think of it. And and I think there are there are some there's some things that I can, you know, tell you along the way that that m- maybe you could put together a picture for yourself. But again, I I think just I think every piece has to sound like real music. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And and it has to sound you know really sincere. So we're talking about the qualities of communication. Um, you know, I notice some people come in with terrific ability, but they sort of are like trying to stullify us. <laughs> You know what I mean? Mm. <laughs> Look what I can do. You know, and it's like, no, <laughs> I don't want to, you know, no, it's no. not supposed to be self-serving. <laughs> it isn't. It's like, there's a lot. I always say, especially like playing second bassoon, like I have a lot of bosses and none of them are me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, you, you kind of have to want to give it up a little bit. So, you know, serve the composer, um, serve serve the appropriateness of, of, of what you're doing. But I, I will say that there just is something that I, I notice about auditioning that um, it, it, it's, I think in general, we can, we can let the process sort of run away with us. Um, you know, the minute we're nervous, we're not thinking about the music <laughs> because you can, you can multitask, but your brain can actually only think of one thing at one time. Mm-hmm. So it's when you're like, Oh my God, I am so nervous. Is that note shaking? Uh, pretty soon you've miscounted something or you're just mm-hmm. you know, you're distracted. So, so focus is a discipline and, and that would help, you know, help sort of stay you know, on the rails. <laughs> and then um, I think there's something about, really plainly speaking the music and especially like oboe, bassoon, clarinet, probably flute too. You know, you're probably going to be asked to play a piece of Mozart. And uh, I know David Van Hosen always said Mozart, too hard for adults, too easy for children. There's got to be something kind of, there has to be something sort of inevitable about your music making when people hear you play and that that's where a listener will feel really really satisfied that the music has to have such strong underpinnings um in in the elements of your you know practical preparations that it it yields a performance it sounds really natural so it doesn't sound like someone's trying to press you or you know, it's like how we, it just rather sounds like really satisfying, <laughs> like walking into a really warm house on a super cold day like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Not like bright lights, turn it on. And and I think those things are probably a very sophisticated 
discipline and practice of, you know, the, the four really important, you know, building blocks, meter, rhythm, melody, harmony, played in a way that, that take the listener. And they're, they're harder to do alone. You know, in orchestra, I have, I have a, a big benefit as second bassoon of having someone else set the tempo someone else even set the whole tone parameter in a way because I'm, I am matching the principle and that means I have to do it, but I'm also not having to decide. I mean, it's sort of, you know, while it's a group thing, I am following. Um, and, and, you know, this mixture happens when you play alone in an audition, it's all, it's all you. <laughs> so, but those elements are great. You know, how, how can, you use meter to give gravity to the music. Um, does a rhythm exist in consonance or dissonance? Melodic structure, how, how does it dictate, you know? And then do we play with the harmonies and performance in a way that we hear the, these very strong elements in the music? We hear... Um, the major and minor qualities or the, the qualities of a key or a, a transition of a key. So sometimes you might have to shift how the intonation is expressed and delivered. Um, definitely harder playing alone. And especially when you're getting stuff like, you know, the very beloved positions of second oboe and second bassoon. <laughs> I mean, my predecessor used to say in St. Louis Symphony, the hardest job in the orchestra is second oboe. And anyone who's played second oboe and Dvorak simply knows why. But it's just these sort of subtleties within the instrument and the repertoire that, that do make a, a good difference. But I think a really um, thoughtful presentation that yields an inevitable yet very natural musical offering is, is best. Well, I think sometimes the simplest thing, you know, we complicate stuff, don't we? Mm-hmm. You know, it's got to be better. It's got to be this and that. It's like, no, it just has to be like a warm hug. How mm-hmm. <laughs> Those are free. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 you could give one to anyone and they probably wouldn't, you know, if, unless you <laughs> choose poorly. It, so, so, you know, we probably already have all those elements there. It's kind of like getting back to them. So just keeping it, you know, really humane and warm and real. And most of our instruments are like that. Um, except, you know, sometimes we get so frustrated by our reads that you know, they, they cloud our, our spotless vision. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just sometimes, though. <laughs> well, I have never played second oboe, admittedly. But when I think of some of the hardest playing I've ever had to do, it is second bassoon playing. And you've already given us a lot of really thoughtful ways to think about it, but I wonder what other tips and tricks you have for us and our listeners on how to be better second bassoon players, because it's so um, scary and not glory filled. And (laughs) I don't know how you do it. I admire you. No, I mean, you know, you're, it's, it's sort of like, a, it's like the opera f- friends say, you know, okay, like, you know, the baritones and the basses, like everybody knows the successful sopranos, right? And it's like, a, it's like the opera singers say, well, you don't get paid for the low notes. <laughs> but, but I think what, I think what's a little bit difficult about it is that the bassoon and the elbow are so, um, sort of clunky in the low register it's it's unfriendly to the the double read articulation and and bassoon it's clumsy with the keys and the fingerings uh, so for for second bassoon for the perf- performance of the repertoire there there is no doubt that you know i kind of make you know destination reads <laughs> certain pieces and I, I hope you guys like stories because I, I can really share a lot of my experiences with oh, yes, story please. time. <laughs> yes, okay. Please. Well we we're enjoying the first season with our, our new conductor, Stefan Deneuve, and he's marvelous and he's wonderful. And I I'm I was I am and I was very excited about his appointment. So when he came last year after he was announced as music director designate, but before he started the season, he came and we um, 
recorded Brahms second and played it on a subscription concert. And I was like, yes, yes, I'm going to get that, that G natural and E natural at the end of the slow movement where it tapers away to nothing with the principal clarinet. I'm going to make sure all that's set. And man, we were in rehearsal rocking that, and, you know, and I was like, coming right and right in tune with the principal clarinet, Scott Andrews, and it was feathering away to nothing. And I thought, yeah, I got, I got this. And I look up and he's looking at me going shh, 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 with the finger <laughs> in front of his mouth. And I'm like, okay, all right, fail. <laughs> no, 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 you don't, you don't have anything, you know, it's, it's so, so the parameter just wasn't, you know, it was too chunky for him. So, oh, I know. I'm telling you, I'm telling you. Man, so yeah, I mean, a lot of it, yeah, a lot of it's in the read, and the the general setup is is really important. I mean, I have a I have a friendly bassoon that plays well with others on purpose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have a vocal that helps to kind of soften rough edges. Sometimes I wish I had a little more concentration in the sound and like a little push, a little snarl. It's hard for me to dig that out, but then I survive you know most of what second bassoon is known for is like can, can you go away enough you know mm-hmm. and, but but still be present um especially with the voicing and a lot of the chords you're you're going to be a pretty important feature so so yeah it's in the setup um it's in sort of how we hear our instruments like in a way how you hear the bassoon or how you hear the oboe um, becomes really important. Like what, what, what is going on in your head that then you hear when you play and other people, you have to sort of decide like what you want to be when you grow up. That's about, yeah, uh-huh. that's you know what I mean? So it's sort of how you hear the instrument. For me, I have to make equipment that has a little bit of, you know, the reed has to have um, a degree of, of, of a kind of a flexibility so I can, tuck in and go away when I need to, but have enough presence if I need to stick out just a little bit. And so it's a wide, a wide span that I'm asking for, but it, it, it works. And uh, it, it's not exactly the same setting that you use for principal bassoon. And I think, I think cane makes a lot of difference. And um that's a whole nother conversation. And I am um, uh, just now finishing a, a huge project on cane with a retired Monsanto scientist here in St. Louis, who is uh, about to, well, the, the book is being written now on cane selection for read. And we, and we can talk about it as a separate entity, but there's no doubt second elbow, second bassoon, a lot of things have to sort of come together in your skill set so that you're really I like to use the word available so that you're really available to be incredibly flexible and fit in I I think this is so important it's you're you're kind of a follower but you have to be interested enough to figure out you know what what you're you know doing because it's you can't just say well I don't do it that way I do it this way and then you lock it and leave it it just it's just not flexible enough. You're, mm-hmm. you're really a team player. And, um, you know, some, some of it is maybe in the temperament or, you know, what you choose or how you hear your instrument. Um, yeah, it's, um, it's a destination. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. It's sort of a destination in one's playing. But, um, but it, it's a good one. I think I don't want to make too much of it like it's a big-time specialty. I mean, I'd like to think that 99% of what I would do on second, I could do on principal, but there's just that little thing, you know what I mean? That, Mm -hmm. that might not work quite right for principal, or maybe that wouldn't really work well for second bassoon. Like, you you know, you want to choose the right things in the right moment. I would love to hear your thoughts on the role of the orchestra in American society today. We have a lot of rough news from some orchestras right now. And I'm just curious to hear your thoughts as an active orchestral player uh, about what function we fill. Yeah, it's good. And, and it's, um, 
it's a sober conversation. There's no doubt about it. Um, orchestras have, have uh, you know, from time to time, you know, we can look at one case or another or we're going through difficult chapters. And, and so often when we are at a concert, um, whether we're in the orchestra or in the audience, we're looking around and it, it doesn't look very different than it looked 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 100 years ago, maybe even. And it's it's frustrating. Maybe it's a difficult, um, we can't be everything to everyone, um, but then nothing can. But more, I like to think of it more for for what what it might offer um and i kind of have it in two categories young people and older people <laughs> mm-hmm. and again i'm going to kind of go back to youth orchestras i think i think music and learning a music for really young people is so great i mean think about the skills number one is your listening and we just don't listen enough anymore mm-hmm. you know listening is so important to everything so when we're communicating, we're listening to one another. And how we say things to one another musically makes such a difference what well, it does in our language, too. And I think we're in a, a difficult place the way that we're allowing ourselves to speak and be spoken to. And it's, this is not good. I mean, if... <laughs> I mean, if our words like that you'd hear on just a nightly news feature could be transferred into a line that you played at an audition, you'd be removed immediately for swearing on stage. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like if if those words were music, it wouldn't cut it. And and I think this is this is the the the, the thing that's so great. The discipline of learning music for a young person is that it is a a, a consistency. It does something to our brain learning another language, whether it's a, a, a written language in a different tongue than your mother tongue or, or a musical language, which is great. So that I think the role of the orchestra in, in education is, is vitally important because of the nature of making music. It, it retires, by and large, competition. It requires... Um, that we uh, get consensus and agreement and work together and um, and communication, uh, listening. And thought these are great things for young people. For, for older people, I think of like, I, when I think of older people in music, I think of sometimes their audiences. I, I can't tell you how many people said, oh, I never went to the orchestra until I was 45 years old, right? I heard my first concert when I was 50 and I hadn't heard a concert since I was in school. And I think there's just something about the quality of the offering of a subscription classical concert that I've used the word before. It's a bit of a refuge for people. They, I've, I've heard it said so much. We can come here to have a certain kind of experience. Well, I mean, what is that experience? They are basically sitting in a place that it, where they are around them is very quiet. It's dark. They don't have to do anything. In fact, they really can't do anything. And I think this is such a relief for people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're all running around so much and doing so much. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful place. And then something is given to them and they can just enjoy the practice of, of just listening. It gets to be their experience. It's not rebranded by anyone. I mean, nobody can get in there and, here, this is how you should feel about this. I mean, you can go to a pre-concert lecture, but once it's over, that music is your experience. And so I think of music as being a place of refuge, of beauty. It can be a place of healing. Um, Anyone who's ever been to a funeral service or a church service, both of which might have music, know how powerful this can be. But I mean, some people just like coming to hear a Mozart mass or Beethoven nine or, you know, their favorite piece that, you know, <laughs> it, they love because I don't, I don't know, it played at their wedding or something. I mean, it, it, it's just so powerful. You never know when people need to hear a piece of music. Well, finding how to get music to more people I think is 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 the question of the role. 
not so much like let's change what it is, but mm-hmm. I think it's access. I think access is where I'd put that. So who can who can have it? What does it cost? Where is it? Mm-hmm. When is it? You know, these are hard questions for businesses. Mm-hmm. You know, especially businesses that produce something that I mean, I don't want to live in a world without music, but it's not food, it's not water, it's not clothing. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> it's it's more important than that in some ways, but it still isn't those things. Right. But who would want to be here without it? My God, awful. We can't even imagine. <laughs> right. Shifting gears just a little bit, I have a hypothetical question. If you're new music director came to you and said, Felicia, I have run out of ideas and I need you to program one concert um, next season. What would you put on that concert? Oh, what a fun question. Now (laughs) we get get to put on our like uh, artistic director hat. Yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm an, unabashed sucker for movie music. I no apologies. That's the hill I will die on. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I I really love the music of Ennio Morricone, the wonderful um, Italian uh, film score writer. You know, less well known in America than like say a John Williams uh, about the same age. I think he's a man now in his late 80s, still alive. And he wrote all those wonderful movie scores for um, kind of like Italian films from like the 50s, 60s, 70s and some popular music and even some of the spaghetti Western things that are so famous with people. And um, and, and like I I love like Gabriel's oboe from The Mission. Do you know that? Yeah, oh, of course. Well, that's (laughs) Anio's music. Everybody knows it's so great, so tender. Um, so I would have to, I'd have to put some Ennio Morricone on, you know. And um, and uh, oh, I, I kind of like, I kind of like some vocal things. I, I mean, I love a chorus. I guess because it's like the the, the original instrument, right? You know, the whole human body. Or something really good with chorus, maybe something if there's an Arvo Pert, I love Arvo Pert, his music is just seems to reach to just a wonderful realm, <laughs> if you will. Um, and, um, you know, for like a meat and potato offering, I mean, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm kind of romantic. I mean, I, I can't decide. It's it's like such an immature question, but like, is Sibelius Fifth Symphony really the greatest piece ever written? Maybe. You know know what I mean? Like, like I still ask that juvenile question, but but then there's then there's the Elgar and Enigma variations. Oh gosh, don't make me pick. But anyway, (laughs) (laughs) it would probably look something like that, you know. And it's well, I'm. As much as I love the bassoon, I guess there wouldn't be a bassoon concerto on. <laughs> no? <laughs> um, maybe a bassoon arrangement of Gabriel's oboe. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Gabriel's oh, yeah. bassoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Whoever heard. Hey, hey, wait a minute now. Have you, have you ever been to Barcelona, to the Sagrada Familia? Uh, no. It's a, a huge church in the middle of Barcelona. Well, you, you just go, and when you see the little cherubs and what instruments they're playing, you give me a call back, and we'll dish. We'll dish on that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. I'm just waiting to hear Gabriel's bassoon. That's <laughs> going to be my career goal. <laughs> oh. oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I can steal that sucker. I played it at Kirkwood Presbyterian Church because there's this little arrangement of it for like that you you can buy it. It goes with either organ or um, or harpsichord and the organ arrangement is pretty killer. But I put a little tag, kind of a phony baloney tag in the middle of it so I can breathe. Remember, like breathing, like there's no place to breathe when, in the way it's published. It's like, oh, okay, they forgot. <laughs> So, I'm very familiar with that level of 
nonsense. (laughs) (laughs) Good, Good for you. Sometimes you just have to get in there and conduct business. Um, what is your advice for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? Well, I think, I think some of the things I've mentioned before about persistence mm-hmm. and really staying in touch with what you love doing. I mean, don't, don't let the other things swamp that very, very special relationship. Um, you know, it's true music sometimes doesn't really play well with others you know it's a pretty demanding friend <laughs> uh, our instruments are not like um um really good amateur fare <laughs> you know it's for a young person i mean you you can kind of expect to you know have your instrument by you a lot even maybe on vacations and i mean i remember like sometimes being on tour with an orchestra but Still having my instrument those few hours in the hotel room and running through the excerpts, you know, because I had an audition in a month. I mean, um, some of these things are very practical and they can seem laborious, but but please don't lose the the, the real the joy, the spark, and whatever you have to do to remember that, you know, do that thing. Whether it's playing that. The first piece you fell in love with, it's super easy. I mean, go, go back and play that lovely little Kalimann piece you used to adore. You know, do you know what I mean? Like reclaim it, you know, reclaim the, the, the kind of lovely innocence, pure place where you really enjoyed, you know, the, the thing and don't, don't let the business of, of um, the professional world swamp that too terribly much because you just, you'll miss you'll miss that part of the relationship it's uh you know you have to keep up date night with the bassoon and oboe i guess oh that's <laughs> precious <laughs> alicia it has been such a joy to talk to you thank you for sharing your thoughts on bassoon and music and life with us i am so grateful that you talked to us on double read dish well, you were, you're both really a pleasure and a joy to talk with you. You have a, a wonderful, bright attitude. You're, you're just doing a beautiful thing. You're allowing people to communicate and listen and share. And it's just, that's what it's all about. So thanks. Thanks for doing this. And thanks for including me. I've, I've really enjoyed it. So Galit and I were just discussing and she thinks that no one listens this far that once the interview is over, you turn it off. (laughs) So if you are still listening, give us a shout out on social media or send us an email. We're going to get nothing. (laughs) Tell us if you're still here. No, I don't think anyone's here. Okay. Well, if you are listening... You can find us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can listen to our podcast. Though you, if you're listening right now, you already know how to listen. But if you got amnesia after pushing play and are now listening and don't know how you started listening, you can find us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and YouTube. I think that's it. Who's next? <laughs> next, we are so thrilled to present an interview with the amazing Nathan Hughes, principal oboe of the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. Jackie, let's end this nerd parade that no one's at. Go make reads. <laughs> Beep, bop, boo, boo, bop. <laughs>